Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz trombonist and Steve Shellist, Steve Touré. He talked with us about his newest 2018 CD, The Very Thought of You, and he elaborates on harmony. Steve was born to Mexican-American parents and grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and in 1972 he got a big break of a lifetime when Ray Charles hired him to go on tour. A year later, his mentor Woody Shaw brought him into Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, and from there he would go on to work with legends all over the place. And it was Rashawn Roland Kirk who introduced him to the seashell and added another piece to his music mastery. So please get to know this fascinating cat and dig this interview, my friends. Well, thank you, Steve, for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz, man. It's an honor. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So I'm going to dive right into your latest album, The Very Thought of You. And you make it very clear in the liner notes here that you're getting back to what is in your heart. Talk to me about this project. How do you feel about this album? Well, I feel good about it. It's a new adventure for me. You know, I've never done a balance album. And uh, I just wanted to play the melody. You know, it seemed like playing a melody is a lost art, you know. I mean, I've all, on all my earlier records, I've played a lot of fast stuff and intricate stuff and with Woody Shaw and McCoy and all that, or Dizzy, you know, and, and and I've never done something just focusing on ballads, although I've always had at least one ballad on my records, all of them. Uh, this one, I wanted to really get into it, you know, so to speak, focus on tone quality, and I was thinking more like a, a singer. Rather than trying to improvise over the changes of a ballad and play a whole lot of notes and stuff, you know, I've done that. I wanted to just focus on the melody and interpret the melody and let let somebody else, at least on the arrangements with the strings, let them do the improv, and I would focus on the melody as a singer would. And I deliberately did not embellish the melody and try to change it up and all that. I just wanted to play the melody for the melody's sake because, you know, to me, melody and harmony and rhythm are the prime elements of what music is about. And, of course, feeling comes first, but, you know, I don't hear that much melody anymore. When you look at pop music, melody is gone. This had to be a joy to do this with Kenny Barron, Buster Williams, Willie Jones, yeah, George Coleman, and Russell Malone. What was it like to do it with this ensemble? <laughs> it's like driving a Rolls Royce. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back to the beginnings of your life. You grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, you were absorbed in music. Talk to me about how you got so involved in jazz. Well, my mom and dad met at a Count Basie band. We could start with that. And they were big, you know, big band music was the popular music of their day, the dance music. And so they played big band music. And they also played earlier jazz, Louis Armstrong, and New Orleans traditional. And some classical music in the house too. They weren't from the generation that was into bebop. That, they were before that, you know. And, but anyway, 
They took me to see Duke Ellington in person, not the ghost band, the real band. I actually saw Duke Ellington play with Johnny Hodges, and Clark Terry was in the band, and Cat Anderson, Harry Carney, Britt Woodman was playing lead trombone. I think Lucas Jones was on the drums. Ella was the guest vocalist, and Coleman Hawkins was the guest soloist. I had just started playing the trombone in 57, and we went to the Oakland Auditorium in California. Wow. And then, then after that, they took me to see Count Basie and Woody Herman. And a lot of the, the big bands, not the real bands, you know, not the ghost bands. I blew a chance to see Louis Armstrong. I had an opportunity, but I was a kid. And I didn't know what it meant. And I went and wanted to play basketball instead. <laughs> so my mother took my brother. Oh, I could kick myself now. Because wow. Jack, Jack Teagarden was playing trombone with, with uh, Louie on that concert. And I missed it. Yeah. But anyway, I saw a lot of the, I saw I got to see Monk and Lee Morgan, you know. So I started playing trombone in the fourth grade in a school band. And then in middle school, they had a jazz band. So that was my first uh, foray into improv. And we used to do uh, the improv on New Orleans traditional, like when the Saints go marching in, Muskrat Ramble, Bourbon Street Parade, Tin Roof Blues, those kind of songs. And then in high school, somebody gave me a J.J. Johnson record. And boy, that was all over then. I didn't even know you could play a trombone like that with that clarity. You know, I'd heard guys play high and sweet and, and a lot of notes, but not with the sound and clarity of articulation. J.J. was just on another level. I wanted to play like that. So then I started checking out that side of me, bebop, and then that led me to Coltrane and on and on. You know, it just grew. What was it? Of all the instruments you could have picked, you picked the trombone. What was it about that instrument? Don't ask me, man. I, <laughs> yeah. I love it. I still love it. But I know this. If I had to pick saxophone or trumpet, I would have been working a whole lot more, you know. They give the trombone a hard way to go. And it's funny because, uh, you know, I, I hear sometimes from uh, – record people like when I was with her, they try and tell me this the trombone doesn't sell and uh, and uh, just play your shells and all this stuff and that's not true I mean, Tommy Dorsey had million sellers like you know top of the charts and Benny Green had a million seller AM hit a uh, jukebox hit would blow your horn which was a jump blues you know back in in the 50s and and then in the 60s, when I was in high school, Buddy Morrow had a top 10 AM radio airplay. They used to call it instrumental pop. They didn't call it jazz then. Now they call it instrumental pop jazz, and it seems to be taking over the jazz festivals everywhere. But back then, they just called it instrumental pop, and Buddy had a hit on Night Train. It was, I remember it very clearly. It was a big hit played on the radio, you know. And uh, they had the, the guitar and the drums like boom, boom, bing, boom, bing, bing, ding, 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 
Speaking of promoting and being around somebody that had to be prolific and taught you so much, in 72, you were with Ray Charles. What did he teach you, not only about music, but about life? Oh, boy. How do you put that in words? You know, I mean, Ray Charles, man, is all about feeling. I mean, he played all kind of music, you know, and he did it all with the utmost feeling and commitment. And besides being a, a brilliant genius musician, he was also a brilliant businessman. And I didn't realize that till after I left him how deep that was because I, when I was with him, I was very young. I didn't realize what it meant to own your own record company, to own your own masters, to own your own recording studio, to own your own booking agency, you own your own management, totally self-contained, owned his own airplane, owned his own tour bus, everything. He was one of the first to do that, if not the first. And, uh, you know, of course, it was a thrill to play with him. You know, later on, he ended up playing on one of my records. And my younger brother played drums with him for 18 years up until he passed away. And my daughter was the last Ray Lett to be hired to sing in the Ray Letts. And she worked with him all but two months, and then he got too sick to go on. But, uh, you know, I got a, a lot of history with Ray. He touched me very deeply. It's off every night he would do Georgia. Because if he didn't, you know, people would be upset. They want to hear that. And every night it would give you the goosebumps, you know. And it, it, it's deep because you knew it was coming. And it still make you feel something special. And, you know, I've heard a lot of jazz musicians say, well, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to play that song because I played it before. I got to do something new and different. Well, Ray taught me that there's nothing wrong with doing a song if the people want to hear it. Just be creative with the way you do it because he wouldn't come in exactly the same way every time. He'd vary it and just make it in the moment. It would be fresh every time. But it was still Georgia and it was touching. It was deep. How he could do that. You know, that's another level. Well, and you've been around so many others in your career as well, and I want to know this. The influences that you got from you know, folks like Horace Silver and Max Roach, and the list goes on and on. What did all of these guys collectively kind of add to you that made you the kind of teacher to mentor young players that are around you? You know, you get different I guess if you want to be academic about it, which I don't like that approach, but it is a necessity at times. So I'll say you get different information from different artists in terms of what's, when you play with them, what you absorb. But for me, it was more like absorbing uh, the feeling of the moment on the bandstand while it's happening, and you learn through experience rather than in an academic setting. And and I feel that the best way to teach is to to be on the bandstand or to share or to at least 
show um, what the what is going on through example rather than just verbally in this page in the book and some teachers say, Oh well you play this page, oh you missed the B flat on bar twenty three. Well, you know, okay, that's correct, but music is deeper than that, you know. And personally I would rather hear somebody miss that note and played the rest of it with total feeling and commitment than to not miss any notes and make it sound like you're playing an exercise. So what I guess what I got from all like McCoy and Dizzy and Woody Shaw and Rossan and Dexter Gordon and Jackie McLean and Bobby Hutchison and uh, Freddie Hubbard, I can go on and on, all the people that, that I've had the good fortune and blessing to be on a bandstand with is the feeling they played with and the commitment to the moment and to the rhythm of the music. The, the rhythm is the African concept of rhythm. It, it, it comes from the heartbeat. It's, it's not a metronome. And that's why I'm not attracted to pop music in its current state because they just use computers and drum machines and it's like mechanical. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't beat like a heart. And the artists that I had the fortune to play with played from their heart. Let me ask you this. You know, you've been, you've gotten a lot of awards. You, you've gotten a lot of accolades over your life. But I want to know this. Not what your favorite one was. What awards surprised you the most? What, what kind of knocked you off guard a little bit? I suppose a National Endowment for the Arts, I got, I got a couple of them. But the first one was really a surprise when I got a, a grant, I guess they call it to do some music, and that's when I first conceived of putting together the Shell Choir. And Cecil Taylor told me he was on the board, and he's the one that told me to give it to me. You know, that's something I always wanted to play with Cecil. Never got, we talked about it, but it never happened. At this point, after all of the miles that you've traveled down this music road of yours, are you happy with how everything has turned out up to this point? Man, I've been blessed. Are you kidding? Shoot. Hmm. If I never play another note, I'd be blessed just to have shared the bandstand with you. The likes of all the people that I've been associated with over the years. Are you kidding me? Shoot. Let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? <laughs> well, we can go off on that because, now, you know, what does jazz mean? You know, I mean, in today's vernacular in today's definition of jazz, what does that mean? You know, I don't even know. I think it's America's classical music, you know, because the orchestra is not America's classical music. That's European classical music. And I'm not talking about hip-hop or, or hip-hop jazz or Latin jazz, which I have big experience in Latin jazz, uh, but I'm talking about real jazz, which is coming like through the tradition. Louis Armstrong, say, Duke Ellington, uh, Charlie Parker, Coltrane and Miles, you know, acoustic based on African rhythm, not on a drum machine. What, what does jazz mean anymore? What does that word mean to you? You know, it's different to everybody. So I just know what it means to me. Of course, the people that played it didn't name it. That's another issue. Rasan used to call it black classical music. I understand that because that's where it comes from. 
it, it's a, it's a deep thing, you know. But it's definitely connected. Our Blakey used to say, uh, "No America, no jazz." So you've you've had the you've been fortunate in your career to be on stage with so many luminaries, so many people that a lot of jazz fans would love to have seen just once in their life. So I want to ask you this. What live shows have you seen that really moved you, where you, you left and you were just floored? <laughs> That's a good one, because I can win the miss. Well, the first one I have to say was Duke Ellington. That blew me away. When I was just a kid, 1957, in fourth grade, I just started playing trombone, but that made me want to play the music. I mean, I didn't know what they were doing, but I knew it was special. I knew it was deep. I could feel it. It touched me, even as a child. And uh, that was one of the first ones. You know, I have to say that. And then um, I remember seeing Jimi Hendrix. Boy, that blew me away. I've never heard nothing like that before or since. I remember B.B. King. I remember seeing Hassan Roland Kirk. First time I saw him, I ended up playing with him. But man, I've never seen Hassan play three saxophones at once and talking the flute and all that stuff. Jethro told that Ian Anderson stole all of Hassan's stuff and made the money. <laughs> but uh, then I saw Sonny Rollins. At the jazz workshop in San Francisco in 66 with Ben Riley, boy, that blew my mind. I had to go back a second night. Then I saw Miles' group with Herbie, Wayne, Ron, and Tony. And during the period they played Freedom Jazz Dance. And I, man, I had never heard nothing like that before or since. Some of these youngsters today think they're doing advanced stuff. Let me tell you, man, I ain't heard nothing to come close to that stuff. And then, and then McCoy Tyner, first time I heard him, that blew me away. And then I remember another group that, I don't know if they ever even recorded, it was a short-lived group, but wow. I was a freshman in college, and I went and saw this group called the Jazz Communicators. And it was Freddie Hubbard right after he left Art Blakey with Joe Henderson, Cedar Walton, Lewis Hayes, and I think Herbie Lewis was playing bass. And wow. The level they were playing on. I want to play like that. That's what I was saying after I left that. I said, man, I want to play like that one day. And I ended up playing with them. <laughs> which is a blessing. Which is a blessing. You know, I've heard a classical, this classical trombone player named Christian Lindbergh. I went to a recital he did. Oh, man, I never heard anybody play that much trombone. I'm not talking about jazz and improvisation. I'm just talking about playing the trombone. And he's European. He's Swedish. So he's playing European classical music. That's his music from his culture. And he memorized it, and he played it from his heart. And it's funny. Some of the, the students in, at, at the school where the recital was, you know, he cracked a few notes during the whole course of the thing. I think maybe two notes or something. But he played with such passion, and he gave up so much. He was sweating, literally dripping at the end of the uh, the performance. You know, some of the students would say, well, he missed a couple of notes. You know, good. I said, so what? Did, did, did you hear the feeling that he was playing the music? But he memorized it. He played it from his heart. That's what counts. 
I loved it. It blew me away, man. Let me ask you this. You've, you've been around a long time. You've influenced so many musicians, so many people. You've made such great music. And everyone has a perception of you. Your family has a perception of who you are, your, your friends, your fans. But you know Steve. Who do you think you are? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm still trying to find out. To me, life is is an evolution. It's a, it's about growing, and and you got to keep growing. And so I'm still seeking. You know, I'm still searching. I'm still trying to grow, not just as a musician, but as a human being. You know, you got to take care of your body. And that's your temple, and you got to take care of your spirit. And whatever you are in your life, that's what comes out in your music. And there's a connection. And so I try and work on all of it. I'm not done. I'm still yeah. searching. Amen. I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. Steve, thank you for taking a little time out for me and for Neon Jazz. It's been an honor. My pleasure. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in San Francisco, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Steve for his time, his stories, and the music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Jazz.